Hello, welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme, Future Classics. I like listening to that song a little farther than we normally get. Uh, my name is Brett David Stewart. Joining me, as always, my two splendid co-hosts, Nicole Davis. How are you? Snowed in, but the power's back on. I've got, uh, I poured the Kraken into my Diet Pepsi, and so I'm feeling pretty good. There you go, yeah. And joining us as well, David Luzader. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm in a new chair this week is a lot comfier, so wow. I think that'll make a better experience for all of us in this podcast. I think so. I think so. <laughs> Everyone podcasts better with a comfy butt. It's true. It's, it's absolutely true. true. Well, this week is future classics. That means that one of us picks a film that we believe will be a classic in the future that has come out in the last decade, and we all watch it and we discuss it. And I believe this week actually doubled as a new to two as well because it was my pick this time. I picked twenty seven, sorry, twenty sixteen's Fences, and I don't believe either of you had seen it before. Correct? I had not. No, I also had not. All right, well, it was kind of a new to two as well, and that came out again in 2016, so it is eligible in our time span. Actually, the newest film that we've watched uh, on this podcast Ooh. thus far. Now, next week, we're going to be doing You Did This To Us. That means we are watching the film that you voted on, and you can either torture or delight us or some weird mixture in between. It is entirely up to you, and since we don't know what that is yet, because you're currently voting no. on our timeline, I'm going to tell you in post-production right now. Hello everyone, Brett Stewart here in post-production. I'm recording this note again on my iPhone since I don't have a mic set up yet. I just moved. Everything is in boxes. My life is in boxes. Just endless boxes. Anyway, you picked Gremlins 2. More of you voted than ever before. So next week, you did it to us. Gremlins 2. <sighs> Back to the show. Enjoy. Thanks so much, everybody. Please make sure to vote again in five weeks. Well, that will be next week's. Be sure to check that out so you can follow along. But this week is Fences. This is, of course, an adaptation of an August Wilson play. A working-class African-American father tries to raise his family in the 1950s while coming to terms with the events of his own life. This was directed and starring Denzel Washington. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about August Wilson in this podcast and why I picked it and why I love August Wilson and why I love this movie. Um, and we're also going to talk about what's coming next because this is the first of 10 movies, ultimately. And the next one, I believe, also is going to star or at least direct by Denzel as well. So Denzel's kind of taking the, whole, the, uh, the reins on this. But let's talk a little bit about it. Fences. You guys have never seen it before. Uh, first of all, had either of you read the play at any point in your life? No. No, I had not. Oh, wow. So we're really going in blind here. Okay, that's that's exciting. <laughs> yep. So for, for the audience that's not familiar, and go ahead and read the play or uh, go see the movie, to be honest, those experiences are very similar. It is a very faithful adaption, which, again, we'll get into. But it's all about an African-American father who is dealing with kids from all different moms, and he's trying to maintain a marriage or at least maintain the appearance of a marriage while also cheating on his wife and doing all sorts of other zany antics while building a fence in his backyard and yelling at, at death. 
Uh, <laughs> he spends a lot of time yelling at mythical figures that you don't actually see. Uh, so that's fences. That's really fences at its core. This is something that you read often if you're in high school nowadays in the U.S. Uh, it's the most accessible August Wilson play, which is why it was the first movie. So now right off the bat, Nicole put in our docket, it's very clear this is based on a play. And you're absolutely yes. right, Nicole. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's part of it is just the huge amount of dialogue in this film and it comes in very large chunks so people will frequently have monologues or near monologues for five to ten minutes at a stretch which is very unusual for a standard film um it takes place mostly in one or two locations primarily the backyard of their small house in pittsburgh um and it's just there's some there's sometimes some formality to the language and some uh, uses of metaphor that you would not expect from a working class uh, garbage collector that gets thrown in uh, because mm -hmm. it sounds fantastic. Yes, uh, I yeah, and oh, go go ahead, David. There's also like ways that people will refer to information that everybody in that scene would know about, but they're going to like talk about in kind of these grandiose ways just to like, okay, now everybody watching this is going to be like caught up to speed. I think it's like fair to say there's some really great dialogue in here, but it wasn't worked in to be natural and flowing. It was meant to more be seen on stage in a play. Oh, yeah. The, both of those are very fair analysis of what this really looks like on the silver screen. Uh, it is very faithful to the play. Uh, he does really he doesn't really take any dialogue out of the play, nor does he really add anything. In fact, there are only three instances in the whole movie I can think of that are really quite different. Uh, the first is the beginning. Obviously, on a play, you're never going to see him actually collecting garbage. So mm -hmm. that dialogue happens in the yard, uh, but in the movie happens on the back of the uh, on the back of the garbage truck, which I think is very natural. It works well. Uh, then you have the second instance, which to me is the most interesting, uh, which is when Gabe uh, finally and Gabe is my favorite character like ever, like a literary character. I love Gabe, but Gabe uh, gets put into uh, a mental home facility of the 1950s, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Troy goes to see him and, and Troy is his father is, is the father figure. Uh, not his father. Yeah, is his this father. Yes. He, it, it, what I mean is like Troy is the main father of the movie. Gabe is his brother. Uh, and he goes to see Gabe and he's feeding Gabe and there's no dialogue in the scene because it's not in the play because it wouldn't make sense to have that in the play. But he's just like feeding Gabe with a spoon as Gabe is like struggling to eat and he's in the hospital. That's not in the movie. I mean, not in the play, uh, which makes sense. Again, you couldn't have an abrupt scene switch like that in a play. And I think it works well because it shows a slightly softer side of Troy that you know is probably there. And then finally, uh, the last thing I can really think of is when Troy has really put his life into shambles, you find him drinking at a bar when his good friend Bono comes and finds him. And again, just a, just a setting change. That bar is not in the play. Uh, again, in the backyard. So Denzel stayed very true to form with this, which is something August Wilson liked a whole lot because 
when he was alive, he was involved in the creation of films based on his work. And there are quite a few of them. And all of them are very faithful. So Denzel really took that seriously when making this. Now, that's actually one thing reading some um, professional critics' thoughts on the film is, is some do feel like uh, expanding the setting of the, the film so it's not just confined to this cramped house or the backyard um, actually is a detriment to the film uh, where, you know, it's hard for the acting to fill the space when you're you know when the world feels bigger than it does on a stage that's interesting that's very interesting and this is a film that's like it was heavily critically lauded and it won some oscars but i've i i i've heard a lot of discussions amongst people who love the play as to whether or not they hate or love this movie and that's one that i've heard is that some people felt that they should have just had it in the house and just in the yard like the play um Mm -hmm. a good example that might be like glengarry glenn ross that that movie takes like no like the structure of the play takes a lot of liberties. It's not structured like the other play. I mean, the movie's not structured like the play, but it is in exactly the same locations. And this does take some liberties with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, aside from being a very, a very faithful movie, I think Nicole is absolutely right in the sense like there's really long, lengthy monologues with big words, and they sound gorgeous. And I don't really know if the garbage collector would be saying them, but they're really pretty. <laughs> yeah no I, I definitely had some that thought of like this is a really blue collar guy and he's like <laughs> almost going on like a shakespearean rant here right which i would not say ordinarily you know just because somebody is blue collar that they wouldn't talk that way it's just that it's most blue collar people i know who talk that way are self-taught and read a lot and it's made clear in the play that right. detroit cannot read Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And I think that so the central conflict of this play is whether or not Troy's an ass, I think. Uh, and <laughs> That's a conflict? Yeah, I mean, no, is there an argument right. about it? Yeah, I think there is. I think there is. Uh, this is why in our docket I put, is Troy, is Troy actually an asshole? And, um, yes. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Is he an asshole or is he a dad that just wants to try to do right by his kids and fails? Okay. So I think, I mean, I think it's a combination of the two. He actually, he absolutely is like trying to do well, but that doesn't mean that he's succeeding. Um, He is doing some, you know, when he's, when he's telling uh, his wife about, you know, the, this affair and he's going to be having this kid, uh, his talk is all about like, Oh, it makes me feel so good. It's all this stuff I didn't know that I deserved. And that like, you know, I'm sorry for what I've done to you, but I deserved it. Like, this is what is okay for me to do because it makes me feel a certain way. Right. Not to mention he's going on and on about how he's never felt this way before and how happy he is when he's with her and how he laughs like he never thought he could before. And he's spouting this off. To his wife. His amazing wife. 18 years. He has never asked for this sort of thing, even though she's been right there and loves him deeply. Yeah. And it's just like, you just want to smack him. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. If if this movie did not have her reaction to all of that, um, 
it would not be considered i think like a, like a good movie you know her because she has this moment where like she totally undercuts him and from the audience perspective it's like she is absolutely right and then the further proof he continues being an ass so they like live in the same house for six months but aren't together and then she comes to his place of work and asks him just to come home like she's laying out there like we can move past all of this if you just come home tonight you know or after work tomorrow just come home and he's like no i'm gonna go with my friends to the bar and we're gonna drink and we're gonna we're gonna play games and like i'm gonna go you know have fun and like then i'll then i'll come home at night it's like just go just go home oh my god yeah yeah (laughs) go home yeah she is she is really you know she it's taken her this long to get it together and be able to reach out to you like this and you're just gonna throw it in her face it's gonna blow it off oh yeah absolutely and i'm so glad that david mentioned the scene of rose troy's wife reacting to him cheating on her and getting another woman named alberta pregnant um because to me, like that scene, it's really powerfully written. Uh, you know, there's two really famous monologues in this movie. The first one is her monologue in response to that, where she starts talking about how, you know, I planted a seed in, in you and my future in you, and I stood beside you for 18 years, and I it took me 18 years to realize that the soil was rotten and nothing was ever going to grow out of that seed. And then the second one is when Troy is fighting with death about a fence. <laughs> um, yeah. But that scene with Viola Davis is chilling. It is, it is purely chilling to me, because... She she won the Academy Award for that for Best Supporting Actress, and I think it's well deserved because she's there's like snot flying all over her, her face, and she's like like oh my god like that's real snot and tears and like she is so into it and she's so intense yeah. and it's so believable. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. love her. I yeah. love her and so I mean, much. I think it's it it goes part of the way you know that that's goes part of the way to explaining that you know Troy is definitely an asshole, but. You know, to go back a little bit to what you said before, is he a dad who tried to do right and failed miserably? I'd say that's also correct. Um, But it also, his definition of what, what is expected of a dad and what a good dad means is completely different from (laughs) A, what his wife thinks a good dad is, and B, what we would think today a good father is. I you gave know, you them bones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. his job is to show up, bring home his money so that his child can have food and clothes and a roof over his head and to discipline the child and teach the child that he's the world will never give him anything and that he is going to have to fight for everything he needs in life. Yeah, and that those are his responsibilities as a father and liking has nothing to do with it. Right. And you can see, I mean, you can see his motivations in some of the stuff that he does and you, you get it like the whole thing with his son who wants to play football and you know, there's going to be the, the guy from the college. So it's like, he could have a chance to like go to college to play football. Uh, And you know, Denzel's whole reaction to it is like, because he has this failed sports career, you know, he's like, you can't put your hopes and dreams in that. Like, you, you know, get a job, work hard. Like that's, that's like good. And like that, you know, you, that, that makes sense, right? Like it, it's hard to 
be an athlete and it's very it's very unlikely to be an athlete like professionally and then live off of that like there is some wisdom there of like oh you know you need to work hard to have a job but also like like i mean your kid has a chance to go to college yeah like that's that's what annoys me about troy in this movie in the play is that at no point does Corey or rose ever make the argument that he will make a career out of football they they explicitly tell him this is to go to college. They will pay right. for college. And there's a point in in the story where he says, you know, times are different than they used to be. Um it's when they're it's when Bo, it's when Bono is over and they're cutting wood for the fence and he's talking about how times are different because um he can go into stores that he wasn't able to go into and get haircuts at, you know, haircut shops that he wasn't able to go into. So he's adapted enough to understand like like slowly moving out of Jim Crow, but at the same time has not adapted to realize that there is money and careers to be made out of going to college and not just blue collar jobs. And that has always perplexed me about his character. And I think that's what like sends Corey over the edge. Well, and there's also, there's the, the scene in the beginning where they're all sitting around talking and you have uh, Rose and Bono saying, uh, you know, that there are black people in sports now, like uh, back when Troy was trying to play baseball, that like wasn't a thing like, but Troy is still like, you know, he doesn't care about that. The the world is out to get him. David, he and, knows teams that Jackie Robinson couldn't even make. <laughs> oh, he's so right. angry in this movie. Yeah. And I mean, they, and that comes back at the end where it's like, where Troy is this shadow that is always trying to like get in, you know, like he, his will is law in Mm -hmm. that family. Yeah. According to him. Yeah. And that's how he made Corey feel, you know, and, and Corey, for those who have not read or seen the movie or the play, Corey, you know, ends up having an altercation with Troy. That's like one of the really intense scenes in the play in the movie where Corey's like swinging a bat at him and Troy's like, kill me boy. And then like, they like fight over the bat and then he kicks him out of the house and he goes and joins the army or the Marines rather. The Marines. Um, yeah. The Marines. And, uh, ah, and I, and I think like, I'll be, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll lay it all bare right here. I think the reason that I love fences is because I can relate to these characters. I can relate to having a really bad dad who was an asshole, but tried to do right and couldn't really do that. And it just made things worse. And at times, like I had that in my life. So I see myself and Corey at times in the play. And I think that's why maybe if we come to the conclusion at the end of this episode, that it's not a future classic movie. I think that's why it's a, classic play right because we have established it's a classic play so at least the the writing and the context of it is classic for that um but one thing i want to talk about as well is what are we meant to make of the montage after troy tells rose about his affair this is one from nicole uh david referenced it earlier this is the six months of her living her life kind of separated from him as everyone's walking around sad Right. There are shots of the empty house. There are shots of Corey in his room by himself, lifting weights to stay strong, presumably for football. And there are shots of, uh, you know, Rose going to church and getting Mm. trying to get some some solace there and some strength 
um, to go on and overlaid on it is this um, absolutely beautiful uh, rendition of Day by Day by Jimmy Scott. And um, it's a very different moment for this movie. This movie has almost no music in it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very little hints of a score here and there mm-hmm. in dramatic moments. Uh, occasionally, Troy will break out into a song and not like, you know, not like a musical, you know, like, uh-huh. oh, what a beautiful morning. You know, he'll, he'll sing song. songs like just as a joke uh, sometimes. But so this is a really different moment for the movie. And it's clear that Denzel Washington wants us to be getting something out of this. And I'm not sure I'm clear on what that is. I think I, for, th- you go ahead, David. Uh, well, no, uh, I was just gonna say, I mean, I think a lot of it is just the passage of time and to see their, their different grieving, uh, that is, you know, not something you can do on stage. Like you would just be like, this scene happens. And then, uh, you know, either that's like the intermission break, which I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it. So that, like, that kind of feels like that's the intermission break or you just like, dim lights come back up and someone says it's been six months like in the first couple lines of dialogue yeah it's for me that scene is um more than just showing the passage of time i think it shows that like a a you know um rose has not left troy um and Mm -hmm. b in order to not leave him, she's decided to start an entirely new life for herself, which she alludes to in her, you know, famous monologue where she says, you know, uh, I planted my dreams in you and I sacrificed things too. And, and now she's going out and trying to live that. I think, I think that there were things that she probably sacrificed in her life that I think she's now saying, you know, screw Troy. I'm going to take those back. Like he is obviously not a religious man. Um, he rambles about Mm -hmm. death, but he never rambles about God. Uh, in fact, he just thinks the church wants your money. You know, he makes snide comments about everybody, it when she's everybody there. Everybody wants his money. Everybody wants Troy's money, but uh, the church included. So I think, uh, I think that really that montage shows Rose, like coming to terms with being an individual outside of that marriage. Because there are so many times in the first hour and a half of this movie where he says things to her in front of people. Like, they wouldn't be okay behind closed doors, and they're even worse in front of people, where he makes these comments at her, like, come here, woman, and, and like, makes really, like, <laughs> like sexual comments to her in front of, like, their, their family friend and their kids, and, like, and she, you know, as powerful and as strong as, as a woman as she is, you can tell that 18 years has, has pushed her into the ground, that she is strong, but she's but she's a different type of strong. She's strong enough to take it, but I don't think she wants to fight him on it. And I think that that montage shows that she's finally like getting out from under him because he is that shadow, right? Um, that's kind of what it means to me, I think. But then there's other parts of it too, like Gabe is at the is Gabe is at their mom's like gravestone, and I've never fully understood that part of the montage at all. 
Yeah. Like he's just eating a sandwich a at bit. a gravestone that says mother. Um, yeah. Which I'm okay with because I just love Gabe. But like, I just want to talk about Gabe for a minute. Isn't Gabe the most pure character ever? Um, Gabe made bad, man. I don't know. It's... It, it smacks a little bit of the trope of the magical person with Down syndrome who is somehow more connected to God. Um, mm, interesting. It's, you know, it's, there is a, oh gosh, I can't remember the wording. Um, I think it's, there's a saying that God looks after fools and little children. Um, mm. And it's just this sort of concept that mm. people who have damage to their minds are somehow a little bit holier than everybody else. Yeah, the, the phrase and I'm touched not in the head. Right, mm. he's touched in the head. And the other thing that bothers me is that 24 years prior to this performance, he's doing the exact same performance almost in Forrest Gump. The character? So, Mike Kelty Williamson plays Bubba in Forrest Gump, who is Holy this shit. not very bright <sighs> black Bubba? man from the South who's, you know. That's Bubba? That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh. God. I didn't. E- I did not recognize old Bubba. Um, yeah, those, yes. I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I think, um, I think, like, the reason I love Gabe is because Gabe brings light into scenes where there's just so much darkness um both physically and both metaphorically and physically at the end of the movie which i hated the first time i saw it and then finally it grew on me um but like his <laughs> it's whole cheesy but his yeah. whole thing of you know right. like like chasing chasing hellhounds, hellhounds and you know keeping the gates open for saint peter i think is endearing um but i could totally see how those tropes could potentially be be detrimental to the character. I could see that. Um, yeah. Although I do like the bit about, you know, how his name's not in St. Peter's book because he's been dead already. So Right. right. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was some interesting stuff there of like he kind of has an awareness of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also just like kind of that stuff that's really like sad and depressing for me where it's like you kind of like get that something bad happened, but like you can't fully grasp reality around you. And that's that's hard. I, w- I was so glad uh, when I first read and saw read the play and saw the movie that Corey finally gets in his dad's face and tells his dad the only reason you have this house is because Uncle Gabe got hurt in the war. Um, because you know, there's so much of this movie where Troy just rambles about how he's made himself as a man, and then there's also times in the movie where he's like down on himself because he's only made himself because of Gabe's, you know, like disability. Misfortune. Um, But I'm just so happy that from the government of like three thousand dollars, and that's what paid for the house. Exactly. I mean, but I mean, to to their credit, Gabe was living in the house with them up until I guess like about six months before the start of the movie. Right, and he's living with Miss Pearl down the street, who only wants his money. Uh, Real quick question: Um, When I took a class on this on this in college, an interesting discussion topic was. Is it better or worse to not see, um, I'm sorry, Alberta? Uh, what do you guys think? Because they don't see, you don't see her in the movie either. Hmm. Uh, I think, 
I think it's better that you don't yeah. see her. I think that's because this is so much about this family um, that that separation is necessary. And the only, you know, person kind of outside of the family is, is Bono who, uh, you know, obviously kind of allows this different side of Troy to come. And that's when we first learn about the affair is, you know, the two of them talking about it. Um, yeah. I, but I think having Alberta there, complicates things yeah and I, th- yeah. I think we're not meant to I think it would pull focus away from Rose mm-hmm. to have Alberta there and Rose is such a, a vital character she's sort of the heart of the of the movie and the play and it would take it would take focus away from her it might lead us to have more sympathy for Alberta, whereas as it is now, Alberta is this sort of abstraction. Right. And she's just the name of... She's... The she's name the of name betrayal. Of, yeah, she's the name of the betrayal. She's the name of Troy's sin. She's the name of, you know, everything that's absent in Rose and Troy's marriage. When... Uh, he comes and says that he's going to be a dad and that there's going to be a kid. Like, so Claire was watching this with me and she turns to me and she's like, Rose going to raise that kid. <laughs> like, did either <laughs> of you have that response? Uh, I, I mean, once it happened, it made sense, but I don't know if I, like, I keyed in on that immediately. Cause like, I, I just feel like that is the, that like, it's one of the best scenes in the play and the movie is when, uh, you know, she's like, all right, this baby, this little girl has a mother, but you're a womanless man. And she just gives him the cold shoulder and walks back in the house. And he's got this shit eating grin on his face. Like he is completely dumbstruck at what just happened. And I well, and love there, it. And there's a great like double meaning to that too, where it's like, I'm going to, you know, I, obviously I'm not your wife anymore, but also in the same way, like, this is not really your daughter. <laughs> like, okay. you know, you, you have no woman in your life. Cause like, I'm going to be raising this kid. What are you, you're not going to raise this kid. No. Yeah. Right. right. Just yeah, she's, randomly. She's seen what he's done to his oldest son and to her son with him. And she's, she's done with that. And she's going to raise this kid her own way. And, and uh, it is this. Oh, go ahead. Interesting. It's just like, is this, this interesting sort of, I don't want to say it's a redemption. It's a second chance for her that she talks about at the end where this is something that freed her up in a way. And it's so interesting because that, that is something that comes from Troy and the darkness of Troy Mm -hmm. is this bright light in her life. And that bright light ends up being alive for, for six years before her dad dies at the end of the movie. Troy does suffer. uh, What is, what is, for all intents and purposes, a heart attack. Um, and Raynell is is the little girl. So cute. Raynell's supposed to be movie. six? She's supposed to be six. No, um, she's big six. for six. Yeah, that's not a six-year-old. Yeah, she's that big for six, six but, but she's supposed to be six, because remember, Corey says he's been gone for six years, and that's enough. Right. Um, right. And first of all, the little girl in this movie is really cute. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to throw that out there, that she does a good Raynell, albeit looking a little older than she should. Um, and... Uh, and you know there's a the end of this movie let's talk about it because david put it in our docket and 
Oh, no, sorry, Nicole put it in their docket. There's a lot of stuff going on at the end of this movie. So Corey shows up back home, and so let's just give a brief rundown here. Like, Corey shows up at home. He's been in the military, or the, yeah, the Marines. Um, He's wearing his Marine dress blues, yeah. Right, and Lyons, who is another illegit, or another child of of um, Troy's from a different Troy's. mother, much older. Lions, all while playing, you know, uh, slick guitar and cool clubs, was cashing other people's checks, whatever that's supposed to mean. So, so he's he's in prison and he's out on work leave for his. He's dad's. committing fraud, right, <laughs> right, for I'm his sure for his um his dad's funeral. And uh, Bono is Bono. Bono looks fine. Uh, Rose is now raising Raynell as her own, and uh, Raynell has. Um, what seems to be a pretty fond memory of her father. She's talking about, you know, her dad and how he used to call her room Corey's room. Like, he still has some sort of, like, love for Corey, which I've always struggled with because he was such a dick to Corey. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but, and then at the end of the movie, finally, uh, Gabe gets let out of the hospital for his brother's funeral and he runs up and he opens up the gates of heaven uh, more or less for Troy and blows his horn after struggling to blow it a couple times and um, the best line of the whole movie after this really deep intense movie with giant monologues is everyone stares at him dumbfounded while the clouds open up and he's like that's just the way it goes and then just wanders off stage or off screen um, the clouds opening up do, do you guys hate it or, or ugh, I struggle with that um, it's it's cheesy. It's cheesy. It's, it grew it's on artistic me. license. It, yeah. Well, no, but here's the thing: it's not even artistic license because in the play, it actually says like clouds open up, light shines on stage. Uh, oh, then okay. yeah, I mean that's what happens in the play. <laughs> but I've always thought it was kind of dumb, and it well, kind of clicked with me theatrical. this time. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's dramatic. I can I can forgive big cheesy dramatic gestures if it's you know the the very end of the of the play or the movie or it, whatever. It clicked it, with me this time. Like this was the time where I was like, I love that. Like it works well, because I, he's I, trying to blow I, I, the horn. I don't know what just the, can't blow it. Yeah, I don't know what the setup of the stage looks like during the play, but I can see it in my head of like they're all crowded out there and he blows the horn. You kind of dim the lights a little and you have like the spotlight come on that kind of shines That's on the do. family from and they, yeah. that would be in a in a play setting on stage that would probably be pretty impactful in that moment. Yeah, totally. I and and for me the first time I saw the movie, I walked out of the movie and I saw it in the theaters, and I was like, this was mind-blowing. I loved it. That ending was horrible. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then I, and then seeing it a couple times since then, and especially this week, it kind of clicked with me finally. Um, it is an interesting end to the play, because you look at Troy, and this we're going to get deep in the ruts here for a second. You look at Troy, and Troy was trying really hard not to give his kids what his dad gave him. His dad didn't even care enough to... He kicked his kid out when his kid was 17. His dad kicked his kid out when he was 14. So he was apparently a little bit better. shitty behavior to justify yours. <laughs> right. Um, so he was trying to be a slightly better parent than his dad. Still failing, but hopefully being a little bit better. Um, and then at the end of the movie, Rose tells Corey, you know, there are still good parts of Troy that you got. And you can't just be angry at him forever because if you're angry at him forever, that's not a way to grow up. That's not a way to show him you're a man. 
Oh, um, no, I did. I loved that part when he was like, I'm not going to go to the funeral. This is my way to say no. And she just like <laughs> straight up is like, that doesn't make you a man. You know, not slaps going, him. saying, yeah, like saying screw you and not going to your dad's funeral doesn't make you a man. Yeah. Like, ugh, I like, I love that she called him out on that. She doesn't take anyone's crap in this story um, at all. And again, Viola Davis. Well, I mean, ugh. she takes some of Troy's, but. Well, she takes some of Troy's, yeah. And and also, you have to wonder, like, maybe, maybe I'm looking too much into it. Is Troy the kind of dude, he's got to be the kind of guy that, like, I don't know what I'm getting at. Like, he's physical, right? Like, that's all I'm saying, right? Like, you got to imagine. Abusive? Son- yeah. I don't know if he's abusive, but I'm sure that. He's Corey lost his temper, got maybe? his share of spankings when he was a kid. Right. Or getting his hand slapped if he was, you know, reaching for another role before somebody else had had one or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, you know, even though he's not a religious man, you know, he probably still stuck with the tenement of spare the rod, spoil the child sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I get a vibe the whole movie that, that she is very afraid to tell him anything he doesn't want to hear. Until until the until the straw finally breaks the camel's back but, and he tells her he's cheating. But on I her. think a lot of that is is her personality is who she is. Where she even says, you know, I tried so hard and I gave everything for you and to you, and it failed me. Mm-hmm. And like right. now, like now, I finally had enough. Right. She's been living up to what she believes to be a good wife which is you know to support your husband in everything he'll take care of you and you will have a home and someone to be with for the rest of your life if you invest all of yourself into you know keeping keeping him happy and supporting him in how he wants the family to be Mm -hmm. and she's invested everything in that and it's she's realizing at this point where she discovers the affair that it's it's gotten her nothing mm-hmm. you know he might love her i believe that troy genuinely loves rose i don't i don't doubt that for a second it's just that it's it's not the kind of it's not the kind of love that rose imagined that she had from him it's sure. not the sort of love plus romantic passionate yeah yeah absolutely i i mean she her her entire speech to him is just amazing to me and i love it um and she's a really heartbreaking character to me and i'm finally i i've always loved this story that she finally has happiness at the end of it and i don't know if that's just because he's dead or not but like she finally <laughs> has happiness um because she is such no, a good I think person it's she, she finally claims her life for herself mm-hmm. right you know i don't my heart's not broken for her i mean i i feel for her but i also admire her because she is strong enough to you know gather up um you know, to gather up her life after this, you know, break with the with the baby with another woman, and she pulls it together and she goes on, and that's a kind of strength that you can admire in a person. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and I think part of it too is some time has passed, and she seems like she's done a lot of reflecting. Yes, uh, by the end, where you know, 
time time heals all wounds sort of phrasing where it's like you know she rec- she obviously is very aware of like this is what was all really bad about it but she, she has that line of you know i wanted a house that i could sing in and he gave that to me like he wasn't he wasn't great all the time in a lot of ways but he you know he did as nicole said like he did love me and he did have his own way of showing that in some way one of the uh the things with this movie is that again you know she did win an oscar for that performance and when she accepted the performance she said uh, i've always thought this was kind of an interesting acceptance speech she said um you know there's one place where all the people with the greatest potential are gathered one place and that's the graveyard people ask me all the time what kind of stories do you want to tell viola and i say exhume those bodies exhume those stories those stories are of the people who dreamed big and never saw those dreams of fruition the people who fell in love and lost i became an artist and thank god i did because we are the only profession that celebrates what it means to live a life so here's to august wilson who exhumed and exalted the ordinary people uh blah 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 paramount made this movie um for a movie that is about people and words and life and forgiveness and grace and i think she is the epitome of forgiveness and grace at the end of the movie like yes mm-hmm. so, absolutely yeah i and i and i also think you know um this is going to be interesting as it moves forward into other movies and we'll talk about the end but i do want to move to another discussion topic from david uh david is this a good movie or an okay movie elevated by strong performances i'd be curious what are your guys Uh, thoughts so so the reason i kind of asked that is you know there's not this movie doesn't do a lot to challenge filmmaking in like any visual sense uh, there's not like there's no shot that I can really like point to and be like that shot is amazing. The cinematography, you know, and it's all fine, it's all very competent, but it's not a cut above. Um, but the amazing thing in this movie is the performances, and I think you know, with less compelling performances, this is not a movie that would have been nominated for best picture. Um, people would have been like, oh yeah, it's really good, but it's not like the amazing thing that it was referred to as oh i i agree 100 percent. yeah no i i i see what you mean and i i mostly agree with you you know that the the filmmaking itself is just it it's fine it does the job um there is one choice that he makes which is to have the camera handheld a good bit of the time and you're you know, you follow characters into the house and then there'll be a reverse shot showing other people coming in. So it's almost like the camera and and therefore the the viewer is another part of the family who's mm-hmm. just always silent and not addressed, but gets to see everything up close. And it brings a sort of intimacy to the film. Yeah. But other than that, it's not... I, I wouldn't say that it's anything extraordinary in terms of the actual craft of filmmaking. You know, of course, mm-hmm. it's a it's a fantastic script because it's mm-hmm. based on a fantastic play. Yeah. Uh, so two like two reviews. I just want to um, call out. Uh, Tiber of the Boston Globe wrote, "You don't get groundbreaking cinema from Fences, but what you get two Titanic performances in an immeasurable American drama make up for that." And then David Edelson of of New York wrote, 
It's not cinematic enough to make you forget you're watching something conceived for another, more spatially constricted medium, but it's too cinematic to capture the intensity, the concentration of a great theatrical event. So that's like a negative comment on that. Right. Um, but, but I do think there is sort of something to that where, you know, we talked about this is very obviously a play. Sure. And that is obvious all throughout. Um, and you have Denzel Washington, Viola Davis giving stellar performances um, that without those two in here, I think, as I've already said, I'm not going to, you know, just repeat myself ad nauseum. Um, it would have just kind of fallen to the waste. You wouldn't have gotten a best picture nomination. I totally agree. I, I think that this is, I've often had debates with people about whether or not Denzel should have directed this. Um, simply because I think while the film is entirely competent on the filmmaking side and the craft of the filmmaking, I think maybe a better director and a more seasoned director could have had that element of how, of filming it in a more unique way and, and providing, um, more elements of a film that make it feel more filmy rather than more play. Like I, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. but it, like, but at the same time, I think that like the reason it's still a good film is because while it doesn't provide any uh, you know cinematic revelations on 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 the technical side, um, I have not been able to watch this movie without having an emotional reaction from it. And I've read this play many times and seen this play this movie four or five times now. You know, I was sitting next to my girlfriend Claire and she's crying at the movie like three different times, um, and. I think that is speaks volumes to how well it's acted. And David's right. You know, this would be a garbage movie if you didn't have Denzel and Viola. And part of that, like I, I don't know if I mentioned this on, on air yeah. is like, they are the actors from Broadway. <laughs> like Denzel did this on Broadway and then brought the entire cast with him for this movie. Um, I, I, go ahead. I think we all pointed out on like on Slack that, you know, as we discussed here, Troy's an asshole. But when you get to that scene before his funeral, where they're all talking about him, all of us had an emotional reaction. Nicole said that she yeah. cried. I got close to crying watching <laughs> that. And I'm like, through this whole movie, I'm like, you're such a dick. And then <laughs> yeah. like, we're getting to like where they're like reflecting on it and and all that time. And I'm like, this family is still together. Right. <laughs> and that's the exact yeah. same and reaction that Claire like, had next to me. Why yeah. I'm I'm sitting there going, Why am I crying? Because this asshole died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, why it do took I care me so much? I know, and when it's, it's, yeah. and it's of because of the it's, family. Yeah. And yeah. when it's, Raynell it's, it's and Corey thing. sing Good Old Blue together. Uh, oh, it's heartbreaking. Oh my god. Um first of all, Good Old Blue was actually written in the early eighteen hundreds and August Wilson rewrote it for this play. It's really kind of oh. interesting the way he did it. Um and to talk a little bit about August Wilson as we close out, uh, August Wilson is really, you know, arguably the most celebrated African-American playwright of all time. Um, and he really made 10 core plays that are referred to as the Pittsburgh cycle. They all take place in Pittsburgh uh, and where he's from, and they go decade by decade. You go all the way from 1900 to 1990. And this is the 1950s play. So it's the middle play. And as I said earlier, it's the most digestible play. It's the one that's always in high school classrooms, uh, probably because the themes are pretty broad. Like, like something we didn't touch on quite too extensively is that 
they're using the metaphor of fences very heavily in this movie. You know, it is great fodder for a, for a high school or college classroom. I mean, Bono makes mm-hmm. a comment about some people make fences to keep things out. Other people make fences to keep things in. Um, yeah. Then there's the entire conversation Troy has with death where he says, when you're ready for me, I'm building this fence and you have to come through the front door, you know, face me like a man death. Um, and that's all great fodder for, you know, students to talk about. English, English teachers can have a field day. Oh my God. This, yeah. Uh, Oh my God. Yeah, totally. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, there are other phenomenal August Wilson plays. Um, you know, some of my, my, my all time favorites, probably the piano lesson. Uh, Ma Rainey's black bottom is great. Joe Turner coming gone is phenomenal. Maybe, maybe that's my, I don't know. I love them all. Um, and they're going to be making all 10 of them eventually, uh, is the plan. And originally Denzel was only supposed to do fences, but, I guess there was an announcement I just found from uh, last year that he is reportedly working on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and they're actually uh, HBO actually bought the rights for it. So that'll be an HBO movie. Um, Interesting. Now, here's the thing that will be interesting to see because there really are no dominant male characters in that movie. There's her band. And I know for a fact Denzel is not going to direct this movie and be a band member. So, like, he is probably uh, just no, directing. Maybe. I mean, maybe. No, he, he's, not a, he's directed other movies in the past, and he's played smaller roles. Has he really? I didn't know yeah. that. Well, maybe he could yeah, then. Couple. Yeah, a couple. Uh, let's see. He directed... He, he likes being Anton in his own movies. Fisher. Anton Fisher. He doesn't have a... I mean, he's I in it, that. but he's not I thought this was like character. his director. I thought his, this was his Argo. Raiders. No, this is not his first directing role. Oh, I thought this was his Argo, um, where he insisted on directing and starring. Um, But yeah, well, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with Ma Rainey, particularly because, like, who do you cast as Ma Rainey? Because, like, Ma Rainey's a real person. Um, You know, Ma Rainey was a jazz legend uh, of the 1920s, and the whole story is about her empowering herself. And uh, Ma Rainey was this giant, like, 300-pound like aggressive dominant black woman with this massive voice and these like gap teeth like she, she's really bizarre looking and i don't know who on earth they're gonna cast for that but um what i hope comes out of the them making these movies is that um i don't, I don't know i hope that young black americans can see these movies and read these books so they're not because a lot of times if you're in an English class, you read a play and then you watch the movie. That's like contemporary English classes. And I hope that that can happen for kids like on the south side of Chicago and stuff like that. And they don't just have to watch white people do Shakespeare. Like, let them know that there are people who look like them <laughs> yeah. that are as talented as Shakespeare. And, and maybe that's debatable. Email us if you don't think August Wilson is a modern Shakespeare. I do. But like. There's something that looks like you that is making movies about people who look like you. This is a conversation we had around the harder they come. And I think that's really special. So I hope that the rest of these movies get made because like they deserve to get made. Also really quick, hot take should white directors make them. Uh, August Wilson did not think so. I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing I would say to that is just, you know, like only if no one else can get it made. Right. I mean, Steven Spielberg directed The Color Purple back in the 80s, because Mm -hmm. I don't think for a minute that a studio back in the 80s would have given it to a black director and supported it as much as they did. 
No, and right. there's there's some TV show now. I don't remember what it's called. It's about like uh, um, I think it's like a like an entertainer of some variety, black entertainer, uh, becomes the mayor of his hometown. Uh, and it's a show developed by uh, white people, but I heard some interviews from some of the the black actors on the show who have said like they they'll come to them uh, and be like, all right, obviously we don't have experience as black people, like help us make this authentic. So you know we're not, uh, it's right. not like a parody or you know it's not making fun of uh, black culture. And so I think if you have a director who's going to come from it in that perspective. Um, could also you know be effective yeah i mean ideally you want ab- absolutely you would want black voices to tell black stories i mean there is no question about that but does that mean i mean this is this is a big debate to have and it's yeah. one where i would like to have voices of people of color to to have this debate with us yes yeah, so um, i told that to david just, in the pre-show we're a bunch of white people talking about this yeah, we are. <laughs> there's just there's no getting around it. We are. Um, it's just do you if you can't get it produced, do you just sit on it until you can, no matter how long that takes, or do you get it made any way you can and just make it as authentic as you can possibly make it? Right. Yeah. And and the reason I mention this is because. This was a really big deal for August Wilson. Uh, probably the, the most recognizable, you know, movie that he was involved in in his life was in 1995, The Piano Lesson, where they made it with Charles S. Dutton, which is a great movie. Yes. Um, and Lloyd Richards directed it, who was also the play uh, stage director for the, um, the you know, releases of these plays with August Wilson. And in 1996, he gave uh, a speech at Princeton. And it's a really famous speech. I cannot recommend it enough, like reading it. Um, but it's called The Ground on Which I Stand. And like he just opens it up and what he says is, I wish to make it clear from the onset. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a second paragraph. Two paragraphs here. I have come here today to make a testimony to talk about the ground on which I stand and all of the grounds on which I and my ancestors have toiled and the ground of theater on which my fellow artists and I have labored to bring forth its fruits, its daring and sometimes lacerating and often healing truths. I have. I wish to make it clear from the onset, however, that I do not have a mandate to speak for anyone. There are many intelligent blacks working in the American theater who speak in loud and articulate voices. It would be the greatest of presumptions to say I speak for them. I only speak for myself and those who may think as I do. And then he goes into an entire speech, essentially about why he uh, is so adamant that you know his plays opened in black neighborhoods and that they had black directors. And I think it would be interesting if they involved a white director at some point in one of these 10 movies, specifically because August Wilson was so outspoken about it. And we'll see if that happens. I don't know. But Denzel's I, I apparently... I think it would in, be interesting, but it it would be better if not. <laughs> oh, I agree. Like, I don't know. That's, like, that goes against his wishes. And I think that, that they should make his movies the way that... Or his plays the way that he wanted them directed but I'd, yes. I'd like to not see that but i'm saying if no, they did i think it'd be an interesting conversation yeah though the difficult thing and this is for uh creators of all races you know kind of when you're dead and the unsavory folks get their hands on your properties they don't care what your wishes were they're gonna do what they want 
Oh yeah. Uh, look at Alan. Look at Alan Moore and Watchmen. <laughs> if you just want a bo- another example, I mean, that guy wishes that they would stop making Watchmen, but he's never getting those rights back. That's a whole different conversation. I think he overreacted anyway. Yeah. And for one thing yeah. I do want to mention really quick is that I do, for those that are kind of unfamiliar with August Wilson, I want to make sure I'm not painting him like a, like a, I don't want white people involved in my projects guy. Um, because like the way that speech ends is he says, you know, the ground together, the ground of the American theater in which I am proud to stand is the ground, which our artistic ancestors purchased with their endeavors, with their pursuit of the American spirit and its ideals. Theater asserts that all human life is universal. Um, we have to do it together. We cannot permit our lives waste away. Our talents unchallenged. We cannot permit a failure to our duty. We are brave and we are boisterous. When our metal is proven, we are dedicated. He is saying we all need to do this and white people need to support what I'm doing. Oh, that way absolutely. this doesn't even have to be a conversation that way. And, you know, right. your, your plays open up in our neighborhood. Our plays open up in your neighborhood and it all's the same neighborhood. You know, it's all the same artistic community is what he wanted, mm-hmm. but he, and, and we, right. Oh, go ahead. We all, we all recognize with this film that even though, you know, none of us are black, there is still a universal universality to it where totally. we can relate to these characters and the story oh, yeah. that's being told. Oh, totally. It's a very, his plays are very human. Um, So I definitely, you know, recommend reading or watching. But you know what? We're right on time here. We got through all of our discussion topics. Let's go around the table. Is it a future classic? What do you guys think? Uh, I would say it's, (laughs) I mean, 100%, it's already a classic play. Sure. The play, indisputably. And I believe that all 10 of his plays are viewed as classic plays, maybe some of them better known than the others. But um, I I don't know if I would call this a a classic movie, just Mm -hmm. because I don't know that there's enough to distinguish it other than these fantastic performances. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think the acting will be remembered um, as you know classic. This these performances will be watched uh, in you know film acting classes for, you know for years to come. Um, but I think ultimately the, the movie would not stand on its own without them. <laughs> I agree. You know, I, I agree and disagree because I totally see what you guys are saying. And I think that, um, you know, I'm glad that David brought up the technicality of the film and like that. It is such a faithful adaption that it almost suffers from that. And I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, and I think in that sense, maybe it's more classic performances and a classic pl- than a classic film per se. That said, um, there are few movies that have moved me the way this movie has moved me because I've seen, uh, you know, fences performed live on a couple different occasions, uh, both in person and, um, via, you know, like footage of plays. And I've never seen it done better than the actors in this movie. And I think that that is like, I think that this is a classic movie for me because the performances are, are going to, I'm going to watch this movie when I'm 70 and 80 years old because the performances right. are incredible and Viola, Viola Davis is snot running all over the place is still going to <laughs> you like, are yeah. really hung up on her mucus. I, mean, no, because, I like, mean that's like, not like, what's impressive <laughs> no because like like there was an interview where someone was like was that real and she was like yeah I got really yeah. worked up so like it's always been stuck in my mind because every time I see it I'm like that shit's real <laughs> like, that's that's 
borderline that's like stage one of of what at least women refer to among themselves as ugly crying oh, oh i totally was like oh man she is ugly crying oh <laughs> yeah it's some ugly See? crying but uh a beautiful performance so i you know for me yes. it's a future movie I, a future classic of a movie and i think also i think that i will concede that that's also just because i have a huge love of the source material and that makes me biased so well, you uh, know what i think i'm gonna amend I'm going to amend it a little bit. I think it will be a future classic film for people who, anyone who doesn't normally have access to the theater. I, that's what I was going to say. Mm, that's say, interesting. It's, it's a very rare, really well-filmed play. That's yes. a really, that's a very interesting point, Nicole. I've never thought of that because if you don't have the opportunity I mean, I, to see it in the theater. Well, or I, in- <laughs> I attended a, a show on Broadway recently. And um, oh, we get it's, it. a, it's a small theater in the round. And I saw the ticket prices and they're insane. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane for even just decent seats. You know, it's it's into three figures, let's just say. Oh, yeah. It gets oh, yeah. there fast. Uh, yeah. And there are not a lot of people who can afford that or at least not afford it on a regular basis or even as maybe even a once a year thing. And this, this is something that people can watch at home and, you know, be able to share with a lot more people than if it was just confined to the scope of, you know, live theater. I think that's so. That's I think in that sense, it, it will be a a future classic film. Yeah, I, I would agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, that that is a really interesting take on that. I never thought of that because I think of classic plays, potentially future classic plays today, right? Like Hamilton, uh, before Hamilton, stuff like you know the Book of Mormon, and um, I have trouble seeing them <laughs> as a movie. Book of Mormon for a classic. No, because like I think of no, because think about it. When you before Hamilton, what was the play that everyone and their brother was talking about nonstop? It was the Book of Mormon. Different. But that granted. doesn't make it a classic. No, it no, makes I know. I guess I'm just saying popular. What I'm saying though is like is like popular plays of today. I would like to see them adapt into a movie this well because I don't know if they could. Um, I don't know if you could. And granted, there's a difference between a musical and and a drama. But what I'm getting at is like yeah. it's hard to make a you know. It's two, it's almost two and a half hours, and it's really not too yeah. much of a drag, um, and that's really impressive for filming it in like three rooms and being essentially a play on on screen. Um, so, show me that Hamilton movie. I want to see that because I can never buy tickets. To that. uh, that's not that's coming for happen. a while, but it, it will. Will it come? Do you think? I, do you think yet. we'll get a Hamilton movie? I bet it will. Will yeah, it star Lin Manuel I mean, Miranda? Disney will put it out. No. It won't star because. No, Disney, well, Disney currently owns Lin Manuel Miranda, who's he's going to be in the uh, the Mary Poppins sequel. If you didn't catch that, okay. uh, yeah, and I think he's doing music for the live action Little Mermaid. He is. He also did the mu- yeah. music for Netflix when they did a, the Beatles Bugs, which is <laughs> a a uh, an animated series of little bugs, a la a la like a Bug's Life, singing Beatles songs. It if, was really if, cute. if you. God, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a treasure. Uh, but look yes. up like interviews of him talking or like 
some tweets from his wife to, about when he was like writing Hamilton and she would like just be tweeting about like my husband is crying again while writing his play. <laughs> just like how emotionally invested he got in it was apparently a lot. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see if that ever comes to the silver screen. Cause I think it'd be fascinating and I'd be curious to see if he would do it. Um, Nicole Davis, where are you at online? Uh, you can find me shepherding our current Facebook page, f- Facebook page, facebook.com slash movie go around podcast or our now defunct podcast, uh, facebook.com slash geek cinema society, which features all three of us. Um, you can find me on Twitter under at your word whiz, and that's Y O U R W O R D W H I Z. Right on. And what about you, David? You can, of course, find me around the internet uh, under the username DavLuz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. I'm there. Uh, as far as podcasts go, you can find me on the Heck Yeah Comics podcast, HeckYeahComics.com, a show I've put so much of my soul into. I just purchased vanity plates about it. And uh, you can also find me on BrokeBot Mountain. I love it. That's awesome. Definitely check both of those shows out. My name is Brett Stewart. Find me on brettdavidstewart.com. I do silver screens and politics, and I do this program. So that'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We're going to catch you next week.